Turn with me to the book of Joshua, about the middle of the book. Just get to the book of Joshua, and you'll see where we're going when we get there. Eh, And so will I, I guess. (laughs) Find the book of Joshua, the fifth or sixth book, rather, of your Bible. Um, We do have several people who aren't able to be here today. We've got some families who are traveling. Uh, The Hardings and the Stuckers need to remember them in our prayers and ask that they make it back to us safely. Others who can't be here today for health reasons, and uh, at least one person here who wishes she wouldn't be here for health reasons, right? Uh, Soon enough, Dory, I was telling somebody at the men's breakfast yesterday, that boy's going to come out with hair on his chest if he, you know, at this rate. So, soon enough, we'll get to meet that little guy. We're very excited. So, um, well, how about I uh, give you a couple announcements and then open up with a word of prayer. We uh, do have that potluck today, so remember that. Stick around. Even if you weren't able to bring anything, that's fine. I suppose we'll have plenty of food, so uh, stick around. would love to have you join us for that. And uh, tonight, we do have the first of four sessions for a new membership class that we're doing online on Zoom. If church membership is something that you're interested in at any level, it would uh, behoove you. I had a college professor that would always say that. It would behoove you to uh, join us. And uh, if you can't make any of the sessions, that's okay. We'll have them recorded afterwards. But would love to have as many people possible live so that way we can answer relevant questions. Don't want to answer questions nobody's asking. So would love to have you there so you could an- ask questions and we could get those answered. But those are that's tonight at six, the first session. And if you need a link, a Zoom link for that, just let me know and I can get that to you. And then also on the back of your bulletin, there's one more announcement uh, that's related to that, and it's uh, a newcomer lunch. So this isn't necessarily for those who are interested in membership, but if they're just new, if you're new and you're wanting to know what we're all about, if you started attending this year, this lunch is for you, and that's happening in, what's the date on that, three weeks or so? October 16th, yeah, thanks. A lot of dates that I have to remember these days, and so not everything makes the cut, all right? Uh, It's good to write things down. So October 16th, after the church services that day, we'll have a lunch. And again, if you started attending this church this year and uh, you want to know more, we want to feed you and talk to you about it, all right? So have that on your radar. Well, how about I pray, and then we'll get into the book of Joshua. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness toward us in Christ how you have been so good to us, so patient, faithful, and merciful. God, we ask that today as we look into your word that you would help us in this study, that your word would come alive to us, that we would understand and grasp what it is that you've said and preserved for us. And Lord, we ask together that I would not get in the way of your word, but that despite my shortcomings and my sins, you would use me to preach faithfully, that your word would be clear to your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are entering difficult territory in the book of Joshua. Some might say famously difficult territory. If uh, you've ever talked to a preacher or a teacher that's gone through the book of Joshua, you kind of hit this part of the book where you, you look at it and you say, what do we do with that? And much of my week was looking at it and saying, what do I do with that? (laughs) And uh, I had a couple thoughts beyond that before today, but not many more than that. And so I'm just saying this to you to let you know, uh, you don't have a confident preacher in front of you this morning, okay? Um, This is just a a difficult text. And it reminds me of this quote. There, There are some portions of the Bible that remind me of something that 
Alistair Begg has said. Alistair Begg is my favorite preacher. I love listening to him. And he said this one time about another text. While we know that all of the Bible is equally inspired, we also know that every part of the Bible is not equally inspiring. (laughs) And uh, that's where we are in the book of Joshua, okay? Now, this is still the Word of God. I want to make sure that's clear. We are in the Word of God. And when we look at a list of names that is in the Bible... You're not looking at something that is arbitrary. You're not looking at something that was just thrown in by man in between the stuff that God inspired. That list is just as inspired as the exciting chapters before it, right? We have to understand this. It's not just the Bible alone, but it's all of the Bible that we trust in. We're built on all of the Bible. There's not, we're not built on some of the Bible. We're built on all of the Bible. And so we want to see what God has said. We want to do all that we can as far as it depends on us to understand and make application, yet we are going to be covering over two chapters today, okay? Uh, Because this is just some big picture stuff that we're going to touch on. Well, before we get into the big picture of the chapters we're in, I want to give a big big picture review of the book of Joshua. In a big picture sermon, I figured a big picture review might be helpful, just hitting a couple of points or a few points along the way. We need to remember who Joshua is. And he, of course, was a man But he was a man who was specifically prepared by God, wasn't he? That was the first sermon of this series of the book of Joshua, that Joshua had a specific calling on his life from God, and God had been preparing him all through his life. It's amazing to think about what Joshua went through. Joshua was a slave in Egypt with the rest of the Israelites. That's wild to think about because we're so far removed from that in his book, the book after his name. And he went through the Exodus. He walked through on dry land, the middle of the Red Sea. He saw the Egyptians be killed by God, and God grant them great victory. And then, of course, he spent four decades in the wilderness. He saw everyone in his generation, except for Caleb, die in the wilderness. And yet he remained with Caleb. That's a very unique life, isn't it? Joshua lived an extremely unique life, and God had a unique calling on his life. Well, as we get to the book of Joshua, one of the first things we encounter all the way back in chapter 1 are these two and a half tribes. And that's going to come up today, which is why I'm mentioning it it now. The second half of chapter 1 deals with the two and a half tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh. These are tribes of Israel. And these two and a half tribes wanted to dwell in a land that was outside of Canaan. They asked Moses, back when Moses was alive, if they could have this particular land that was east of the Jordan, not a part of the promised land. And they were granted that. They were given what they wanted, this particular land. But if you remember, there was a condition, and that condition was they had to go on and fight in Canaan with their other tribes. They couldn't just take the land and say, okay, good luck, everybody, as you cross the Jordan. They, the warriors, went across the Jordan with them and went to battle with the rest and then returned to their portion on the east side of the Jordan. In the book of Joshua, we saw some promises made. There was a promise made to Rahab. Remember how she lied to her own countrymen. She lied to those who were in Jericho, who were searching for the Israelite spies. But she protected the Israelite spies in the way that she knew how. She diverted them, and she protected the spies, and she became an Israelite herself, she and her whole household. The promise was made to her that with the rest of Jericho, she would not perish, but she would be spared, she and her family. 
Yet there was another promise made, a promise to an entire group of people, the Gibeonites, and they achieved the promise. They got what they wanted through deception. They lied to the Israelites, and the Israelites, not asking for the counsel of God, they promised to spare the Gibeonites, and so you had two promises made in the book of Joshua. We also saw an account of some gross sin in Israel. Remember Achan, chapter 7 and chapter 8? As they were trying to fight Ai, the Israelites were trying to defeat Ai, and they couldn't do it, and it's because Achan and his children had sinned. They had sinned against the Lord. And when that sin was revealed, Achan and his children were put to death, and all that they had were just, it was destroyed. Well, as evil was purged, that evil in Israel... Blessings were then enjoyed because a great period of victories followed that, and that's where we've been for the last few weeks. Chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11 of Joshua, you have Israel enjoying great blessing in their victories in battle. God was granting them victory, and that period of time from when they crossed the Jordan until where we finished last week is about seven years. And it can be hard to lose track of time whenever you're just reading through a narrative of the Bible because it doesn't say always how long things took, but roughly about seven years. And through this seven years of victory, there were memorials all along the way. We kept seeing different heaps of stones when something really major would happen. And that's really what the account of Joshua is. It's just highlights from this seven-year period of victories. It's not every single victory that they had, but it's highlights. And they would make these memorials so that they would remember God's work among them. Not so they would build themselves up like the Tower of Babel or something like that, but these heaps of rocks were to remember that God granted them victory. And last week, we looked at chapter 11, which was the final battle of the book of Joshua, taking us to chapter 12 this week. In the remainder of the book, we're not seeing fighting, we're not seeing battles, but instead we're seeing them divide up the land, enjoy their possessions, each tribe getting their portion of the land, and then Joshua giving them a final charge at the end of the book. So although they had not finished the task of taking all the land, we saw that last week and we'll see that again this week, God called for a rest for now. There was at least a temporary rest. And to show you that again this week, let's look at Joshua chapter 21. Turn to the end of chapter 21 with me. We looked at this passage last week, Joshua 21, 43 to 45. This is essentially where we are in the timeline. Israel is taking a temporary rest from all their victories, all the battles. They've possessed much of the land, not all of the land, but much of the land. And this is the summary that's given. Joshua 21, starting at verse 43. So Yahweh, the Lord, gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give their fathers, and they possessed it. And lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all he had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. Yahweh, the Lord, gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And now look over at chapter 23 with me, the second to last chapter of the book. Joshua 23, verses 4 and 5. Again, about the same time here, it says, Joshua speaking, See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes with all the nations which I have cut off 
from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. The Lord your God, he will thrust them out before you and drive them out before you and you will possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. And so on the one hand, all came to pass and they had rest on every side. And on the other hand, there were still enemies that they had to drive out, right? And that's the already not yet tension of living for God. Touched on this last week where they were in the land but the job wasn't all the way complete. God was good on His promises, and He had fulfilled, in a sense, what He had promised, but it was not the whole thing yet. So they were there, but it wasn't complete. But now, in chapter 12, time was taken to reflect on God's works and to apportion the land. So today we'll look at chapters 12 and 13 and maybe just a little bit of the start of chapter 14. As you run your eyes over chapter 12, if you have a Bible with headings, yours might say at the start, kings defeated by Israel, or yours might break it up into two sections, where above verse 1, it says kings defeated by Moses, and over verse 7, kings defeated by Joshua. And that's essentially what's happening in chapter 12, is just a reminder of here are the kings that God defeated through Moses, here are the kings that God defeated through Joshua. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 12, you'll notice that Moses is given that sweet title that he has in Scripture two different times, the servant of the Lord. That's how Israel was to remember Moses. He was God's servant. And that's a title that Joshua doesn't get until the very end of the book of Joshua. They were to remember Joshua that way too. But the first six verses of chapter 12, it's God reminding his people of the kings that were displaced. And as you read, your eye, or read the, the text and your eyes run over the list, surely you don't know these names and places, do you? <laughs> this is just like, it might as well be in the original Hebrew. You know, you look at that and you say, I don't know where that is or who that is. Well, that could be a potentially a fun study for you is to look that up. If you have a Bible with cross-references, it'll tell you where it talks about it. But here's the big idea. There are a lot of names there, aren't there? In fact, as you look over Joshua's section, it says at the very last verse of this chapter, verse 24, 31 kings, 31. There are a lot of things that God has done in Israel up to this point through both Moses and Joshua. It took a lot of time, but victory was given to his people. And the big idea is that Joshua is now somewhere between 80 and 85 years old, and he won't be able to lead Israel into new battles. This is going to be the end. This is going to be the end for Joshua as the commander of the army. Anybody here between the ages of 80 and 85 that can testify it's time to stop fighting? <laughs> Maybe a few of you, huh? Can you imagine Joshua at this age? Must have been in great shape, but it was time for him to retire, so to speak. And his work was done, and this is a reflection on what God had done in battle through him. There were more people to drive out, but Joshua's time as a warrior is now over. And that's all I'm going to say about chapter 12, okay? But as we get into chapter 13, we have the land being divvied up. And again, you can look at the titles of the next few chapters of your Bible, if you've got headings that are inserted. They're just going to be divvying up the land for a while. And you can kind of imagine this like a, a, a man who had 13 children and on Christmas morning, they all line up to receive their gift from their father. Uh, that's kind of what this is like. You've got all these tribes who are getting their portions. They're getting their piece of the land. And he has a different gift for each one of them. 
They all didn't get the same land. They had different territories, and it's described in great detail as to where those territories are. But in chapter 13, we begin with those two and a half tribes that are not in the land of Canaan, the two and a half tribes who are east of the Jordan, who didn't cross over into Canaan with the rest. And that's where the allotment begins as this land is portioned out. Joshua is given an overview in the first seven verses of chapter 13. He's given an overview of what is about to happen and how he is to care for not just the two and a half tribes, but the other nine and a half tribes. Um, You can see that in verse 7. Uh, where God tells him, apportion this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. But it's important to realize that they didn't just wake up one day and boom, automatically they had their land and their territories. The reason why this takes a few chapters is because there are different means by which the tribes obtained their territories or their portions or their inheritances within the land. Uh, A name that I've mentioned before Uh, who's a commentator, a Messianic Jew, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. What a funny name, huh? Hope he didn't go to public school. Whenever I hear someone with a funny name, it's like, oh, I hope he didn't go to public school. Um, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He he listed five ways that Israel came to possess the land, and that's what's going to be covered in the next few chapters, okay, is how they took the land. Well, number one, of course, was by conquest. The Israelites still had to fight for parts of the land. The Israelites didn't just wake up and all the enemies were gone. Remember, we've said this multiple times now. There are enemies still within the land, and they still had to, by conquest, achieve their portions. The second way is by providence. There's a casting of lots. You'll see that in these chapters where for some territories, they had to cast lots to see how God would determine their boundaries. The third way is by request. Next week, we'll look at how Caleb and Othiniel had to request the portion that they received. They had to go and have a specific conversation about their portions. Fourth is by ability. The tribes had to be able to hold on to what they received. Some had too little land. Others, like the tribe of Dan, had too much land. And so things were adjusted that way. If they could not hold on to the land, they had to leave it and move to another place. And then the fifth means by obtaining the land is by faith. Caleb's faith, particularly, and again, we'll see this next week, Caleb's faith and the promise sustained him for 45 years. And that's explained in Joshua chapter 14. And so there are different ways that they still had to possess the land. They didn't just wake up and it was all done. But we see through the book of Joshua, whether it's by battle or by some other means, God's promises do come to fulfillment, but they take time. God shows himself faithful, but it's not apart from means, the means by which they had to accomplish the victory that God gave them. Well, before Joshua gets to those nine and a half tribes that are dwelling within the land of Canaan, there's some clarity given about the two and a half tribes that are east of the Jordan. They, of course, were living in their requested land. Those tribes, by the way, can be called the Transjordan tribes. That's how I have it in your notes in the bulletin. That's who those people are, the two and a half tribes tribes east of the Jordan. They were living in their requested land that was outside of Canaan, but that land was not free of goat heads, so to speak. Look with me at Joshua 13, verse 13. Look at what it says. The sons of Israel did not dispossess the Geshurites or the Maakites, I don't exactly know how to say that, for Geshur and Maketh live among Israel until this day. 
So these two tribes, the Geshurites and the one that's harder to pronounce, they were Canaanites. They were those dwelling in the land that were to be driven out. But here we're told that the sons of Israel did not drive them out. Those two and a half tribes that were the Transjordan tribes, they did not push out all of their enemies. And what you'll see in the life of Israel as you read through your Bible, especially as you go to the book of Judges, that's after the book of Joshua, you'll see that so many of Israel's problems come from not doing what God told them to do, if you can believe that. So many of their problems come from not living out what they've been told to do. And in this case, the major theme is they didn't drive out all their enemies. And those enemies, they didn't all convert to Judaism. They didn't all become Jews and pat each other on the back and say, yeah, let's live in peace. So many of them became just ongoing enemies year after year, generation after generation, because Israel fell short, fell short, failed too. <laughs> I said that like I was from Missouri. They fail short uh, because Israel fell short and failed to do what God had called, the, uh, called them to do. They had to live with those consequences. Now, there is something interesting here. I, I, was, I read through my commentaries this week and thought, what, what do these professional commentators of Scripture have to say about these difficult passages. And uh, Dale Ralph Davis, that we've quoted from several times in this series, he made a point in this passage to talk about how Joshua is stressing the importance here in chapter 13, because from verse 8 all the way to the end, he's talking about those two and a half tribes. And Joshua is specifically stressing those two and a half tribes to promote unity and to say that God's people should be unified. Don't forget about these two and a half just because they're east of the Jordan. I do think there's a nugget of a point there, but I don't know if that's exactly the direction God would have me to go for the major theme of this message. I would say, though, that another thing we can draw out that's important is that, again, as you run your eyes over the text, look how many places and people are named. Look how much geography is described here. And look at how specific it is about the location. We had a man in our church several years ago who a major part of him coming to know the Lord, a big part of him becoming a Christian, was when he discovered that the Old Testament wasn't made up. He thought that because there are other ancient texts and other even contemporary texts that make up stories about the past, that make up places, that make up people, that the Bible was just like those. And when he discovered there are maps in the back of the Bible, and it tells you where it is, like Lake the Sea of Chinneroth is, you know, at C3, like, whoa, whoa, that's a big deal. You can look at it. And that there's all kinds of historical documentation that describes these places. That's a big deal. And so I know for us believing Christians who are here this morning, we might just take that for granted and say, well, yeah, of course it's real history. And boy, is it boring. For some people, this could be a game changer. When you take them there and say, this really happened. That can be really powerful for some people that you don't even recognize that they're just going through life assuming that the Bible is a bunch of made-up stories. It's not. It's very real and it's very specific. I think that's something you can take with you out of that chapter. We see the tribe of Levi being talked about here in chapter 13 as well. Not just the two and a half tribes that are east of the Jordan, but look at verse 14 with me. Joshua 13, 14. It says, "...only to the tribe of Levi he did not give an inheritance." The offerings by fire to the Lord, the God of Israel, are their inheritance as he spoke to him. 
You can also look at verse 33, the last verse of this chapter, where this sentiment is repeated. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses did not give an inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance, as he had promised them. And you might look at that and think, wow, that, that would really stink to be a Levite. You don't get any land. What's the deal with that? Why didn't the Levites get any land? Well, the Levites were the priestly tribe. The priests of Israel came out of the tribe of Levi. And over and over again, the Levites were told that their inheritance was the Lord himself. Their gift was Yahweh himself. But they needed a a place to live too, didn't they? So where did the Levites live? Well, as you continue to read through the book of Joshua and other places in the Old Testament, you'll see that the Levites were actually given 48 towns to live in, and they were given some flocks, but they did not possess an entire territory like the other tribes because they were set apart for a special purpose, and that was revealed even through their inheritance. They, of course, received offerings. They received sacrifices. They were the priestly tribe. They received the tithes that were made in Israel, some of them, were given to Levites. Levites were able to live off of those sacrifices and offerings made to the Lord. But greater than that was Yahweh, of course, as their inheritance, who worked in a special way among them and used them in a very special way. And as we just, again, look at chapter 13 as a whole, we see that this covers the Transjordan tribes, this covers the Levites, but starting next week in chapter 14... We'll discover how the other nine and a half tribes received their portions within Canaan. Well, at this point, you might be asking yourself, what on earth does this have to do with anything that is remotely connected to my life? Even though we're looking at principles along the way, it can still be difficult, right? It can be hard to bridge that gap. We're going back over 3,000 years as we look at this, and we're seeing something done that was very specific for a very specific people at a very specific time in history, and you're not any of those things. You're you. You're in the church. It's the year 2022, and God hasn't given you a specific inheritance of a land that you know of, right? <laughs> and so you're reading this and thinking, well, how, how can this connect to my life? Let me give you three points of application. First, I want us to start with the nature of God and how we see the nature of God within these chapters, within God's divvying up the land for Israel. I trust that you know Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, what? Oh. <laughs> I think we know it. Yeah, that sounded about right. Uh, yeah. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know it. Um, this is God's world, isn't it? He is sovereign. He is creator. Every land is God's land. We have that song, this land is your land, this land is my land, and however you want to interpret and analyze that. At the end of the day, all land is God's land. All sea is God's sea. The entire universe is God's universe, isn't it? And one of the sweetest places where we can see this described in Scripture is Psalm 24. I want to read that to you. It's 10 verses. It says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood 
and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord in righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I saw a couple lyrics to a couple songs that we sing here. God is Lord of heaven and of earth, and the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. He is the sovereign creator. He owns all things. And by being the sovereign creator and owner of all things, he gets to arrange things as he likes, doesn't he? This is a difficult truth for some of us to swallow, that God gets to arrange his earth the way he wants to. You remember Job's testimony when bad things were happening to Job and he was going through distressing times. What was his confession? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is sovereign creator who arranges all things as he pleases. Go to the book before Joshua, Deuteronomy chapter 7 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look at how God described this reality to his people, Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7. We'll look at verses 7 through 11. Deuteronomy 7, starting at verse 7, it says, The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments, but repays those who hate Him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with Him who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them." Well, not only is God the sovereign creator God, but He is faithful, isn't He? He is the faithful everlasting God who sets His love on His own. He is the faithful sovereign God who destroys His enemies, who repays them to their faces with an intimate judgment. Do you think Israel's existence and their experiences as God's people have borne out that passage? that God is faithful to preserve His people and that He destroys His enemies? That's what the book of Joshua has been all about, isn't it? Is that God is preserving His people in holiness and He's destroying His enemies, proving Himself to be faithful and sovereign. God set apart this people, Israel, at that time, and He set apart that land at that time in accordance with His sovereign grace to display his glory, of who He really is, by nature, the sovereign God who is faithful to His own. 
We see some of this in the book of Acts even. This is when Paul was preaching to a bunch of Greeks on Mars Hill. In Acts 17, we're kind of jumping into the middle of Paul's sermon, but this is relevant. Paul told these Greeks, "...the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, He does not dwell in temples made with hands." Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That is how sovereign God is. He is determining all peoples and the boundaries of their habitation. Not just physical boundaries of where they'll, where they'll live, but how long they'll live. God is sovereign creator. That's the first thing we can see from this. As God brings them into this land that He set apart, He's giving them all these territories that He drew out. The boundaries came from His pen, didn't they? Well, His sovereignty over Israel's circumstances informs us of His sovereignty over our circumstances too. And I want us to see next the kindness of God, not just the nature of God as sovereign creator, but the kindness of God as a personal God, as He issues such blessings to undeserving people. What do you think? In, in Israel's history here, inheriting such fertile and diverse land, is that a big deal or not a big deal? Yeah, big deal. That's a big deal, isn't it? Um, that was no small thing. I mean, you see what it's like people fighting over land today. I mean, that's the cause of so many wars, isn't it? It's fighting over land. And for God to say, I'm giving you this awesome land, and I'm giving you the victory as you achieve it. That's a big deal. The Israelites, though, you, you tell me, deserving or undeserving? Hey, there we go. Stacy was ready for that one. Undeserving. So this is a, a major blessing, a big deal to an undeserving people. How about that one? God doesn't look to see who can become the godliest and then issue blessings based on that. But He grants to people out of His grace, this means it's a gift, a free gift, He grants to people blessings. We see that here with Israel. Now, of course, their remaining in the land depended on their obedience, but their ownership of the land, that was a total gift, an absolute gift. God set His love on them. God saved them from Egypt, and God gave them opportunity for continued blessing within their covenant relationship with Him. They didn't have a, a casual or a uninformed relationship with God. It wasn't mystical. It wasn't something that they felt in their heart. They were in a covenant with God. It was a covenant relationship. And within that covenant, they were told how to continue in the blessing of God. Though they were at times faithless, I should rephrase that, though they were at many times extremely faithless, He has remained faithful, hasn't He? God is faithful. Do you think this is similar to our relationship with God as Christians? <laughs> you better believe it. We don't just have some pithy, half-hearted, lubby-dubby, I felt a heartbeat, you know, funny one time, I have a relationship with God and He affirms everything I do in my life kind of relationship. We have a covenant relationship with God. 
We have a relationship with God that's defined. It's specific. There's only one way. There's salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. We have our debts that were owed to God taken out of the way, having them nailed to the cross. And we've entered into covenant with God by the blood. Jesus has become a new covenant for us that we can enter into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And though at times, many times, we may be faithless, extremely faithless, God remains faithful to you because of Jesus. And we see that reflected even back then in the life of Israel. Well, the third and final thing I want us to see is I want us to see from this as we consider application to our lives the security that we have in our eternal inheritance. I want us to see our security in our eternal inheritance. We're looking at Israel's, you could say, precariousness in their temporary inheritance, where they've been brought into the land and they've been told, obey the law. And insofar as they obey the law, they get to keep enjoying that land. Well, that is not what our relationship with God is like, is it? We are no longer under law, but we're under grace. And we've been given a better inheritance, haven't we? Let's finish by looking at the book of Hebrews together toward the back of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 9. I want us to look at verses 11 through 15 as we consider the security that we have in our eternal inheritance. Hebrews chapter 9. Five verses here in the middle of the chapter, starting at verse 11. Hebrews 9.11, it says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason... He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Well, we have a better inheritance, don't we? In the book of Hebrews, you can trace that word better throughout the letter. It says in Hebrews that we have a better hope because of Jesus. It says that we have a better covenant, the new covenant. We have Jesus. We have better promises. Did you know that, Christian? That you have better promises? You could say you have the best promises because you are in Christ. We have a better sacrifice, Hebrews says. That's what this passage was about. If the blood of goats and bulls, if, if that was the sprinkling of the ashes, if if that was enough for God to overlook those sins for a time, how much more the blood of Christ to cleanse your soul? He offered Himself through God the Spirit, the eternal Spirit. He offered Himself 
that you may have a better sacrifice than Israel. And you do have a better sacrifice. And we have a better possession, Hebrews says. We have a better possession. We have eternal life, everlasting life. Although the Israelites had a real inheritance, that's what we were reading about in Joshua. That was a real inheritance of real land. With their rest, all of that was only temporary. They were given a real inheritance and they were given real rest, but it was just temporary. And what do you have, Christian, in Christ? Eternal rest that no one can take away. You have an eternal inheritance that no one can reverse. No one can come alongside and usurp your inheritance. As I read between the songs at the beginning, you are in the hand of God and no one can remove you. You have something better. Christian, you have it all. Their rest and their inheritance was only temporary because they could not keep it with their obedience. But your salvation, Christian, does not depend on your obedience. Your salvation is a free gift. This is what the gospel is. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. A wage is what you earn. What have you earned for yourself? Death. That's where your obedience gets you. But that verse doesn't stop there. The verse goes on and says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have as our salvation, as our inheritance, a gift that is not only obtained by God's grace, but it's kept by God's grace. In fact, we see in the New Testament that it says our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. There's a space for you that no one's taken away. Your inheritance is reserved for you by God's grace. And so we praise God together as His church that we have a better and a more secure reward, don't we? We have the best and most secure reward. Our inheritance of eternal life. Our inheritance of the Father's house. You remember Jesus talking about that? In the Father's house are many dwelling places. And He goes and He prepares a place for us. And if He's doing that, you better believe He's coming back to get you. That where He is, you may be also. He's going to usher you into His Father's house and your inheritance is going to be totally, ultimately realized as you enjoy what God has purchased for you. And your eternity is going to be full of glory and praise and honor in a kingdom with a king that no one will ever displace. It's better. It's better. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have chosen to share this amazing story with us. We have done nothing to place ourselves in the story. We've done nothing to redeem ourselves. We've done nothing to qualify ourselves. We've done nothing to prepare ourselves. Lord, we recognize this is all of your grace. 100% this is of you. And Lord, we thank you. Help us to keep our minds set on things above where Christ is, that we would live this life as those who are looking forward to the realization of the eternal inheritance, the one that's better than what was given to Israel, the one that no one can take away.
that we would enjoy day by day this great salvation that you have purchased for us. And that we would understand its depths more and more as we encounter our own depravity, that we would see more of your grace. Help us to walk by faith, not by sight, and to focus on King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.